Good afternoon. My name is Michael. I serve as one of the pastors of this church. I'm a husband to Hannah, a father to Holden and Shepherd. Perhaps most importantly, I'm a man who needs wisdom, like many of you. James begins this text with a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? It's a provocative question. How would you answer that question? Some are wise in the world's eyes. They've made all the right decisions. Maybe they went to the best schools. They had the best scores. They made all the right financial decisions. All the best investments. Their career took off, advanced. They have just the right network for what they need to do. Even their friend group is made up of all the right people. But this isn't necessarily wisdom in God's eyes. Now, some others are wise in God's eyes, but not the world's. How can you tell the difference? James has an answer for us today but it might surprise you. One church member was studying this uh, portion of scripture this past week, and they said that James seems a little angry in this text. I think he is a little angry, just a little maybe. It's a rebuke, this passage and into the next chapter four. It's a rebuke for those people, those Christians who want to have it both ways. They want to be friends with the world and friends with God. They want the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. But James says that each of us must pick. This is actually the climax of the letter of James. Some would say this paragraph that we're going to study this afternoon is the message of James. There's two ways. There are two roads, two strategies that you can form your entire life around. The main point of this sermon is closely consider the wisdom that you follow and carefully choose the wisdom you will follow. I want you to examine your life in these next 30 minutes. Look back and think about the wisdom that's been influencing you. I also want you to decide today which wisdom you're going to follow you. Are you gonna follow God's wisdom, the wisdom from heaven? Or are you going to follow the world's wisdom, wisdom from hell? James tells us there are really just two kinds of wisdom. Two ways to live. Let's look at the first. You can see this in verse 14. Let let me read verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every 
vile practice. Now James is going to tell us, what does this wisdom from hell look like? This wisdom from hell has characteristics. You can actually see it, and the first one is in verse 14. It's bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy. Now, it's important to note that jealousy is not always sinful. There is a godly jealousy. It's a strong desire to maintain relational faithfulness that you believe belongs to you. Think about that. Not all jealousy is wrong. What about God's jealousy for his people? He purchased them. He created them. They are his. That relationship belongs exclusively to him. He's jealous for Christians. Or think about a marriage covenant. A husband and a wife. A husband is jealous for his wife's affections. If she gives them to someone else, he should be upset about that. And she should be upset if he does the same. Or even think about children with parents. Children are not happy to see that a father's affections belong primarily to his workplace. They want that from their parents. It's right. It's good. But not all jealousy is godly, as each of us know. There's also a sinful jealousy, a bitter jealousy. It's when you want affections that don't actually belong to you. Or it's even in a good relationship, but it's excessive. It also could be when you're not trusting in your good Heavenly Father. Think about your friendships. Uh, when I was little, I had a friend and he, he told me, if you want to hang out with that other guy, I'm not going to hang out with you. I want you to just be my friend only. It's childish, but that's just jealousy, right? You can also see in families, uh, sometimes when a son gets married, the mother uh, has a jealous relationship with the daughter-in-law because the son's given his affections. They no longer belong exclusively to his mom, the one lady in his life. He's now given them to his bride. That can cause tension. It can cause jealousy. These are some of the, the characteristics of this wisdom from hell. Bitter jealousy. It's um, not the only one, though. He also says there's selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Now, ambition is actually the same way, just like jealousy. There can be a godly ambition. In fact, one that each of us should possess. But there's some similarities between sinful jealousy or sinful ambition and godly ambition. They both care about greatness. They both care about glory. They both care about somebody's name. They both actually care about worship, about prominence, and about praise. But godly ambition cares all about God's greatness. It cares about his glory, his name being worshipped among all peoples. The worship of him, the prominence of him, the praise of his name. Selfish ambition is exactly the opposite. Selfish ambition cares about your greatness, your glory. 
your name. Selfish ambition wants people to worship you. You want to be prominent. You want to be praised. Friends, each of us struggles with selfish ambition. Each of us want to make a name for ourselves. Many people come to Dubai for this reason. They want more. Now, when you're a Christian, you experience something um, that one pastor calls the freedom of self-forgetfulness. You stop thinking so much about yourself. And in fact, you start thinking about God. That's what you care about. Now, of course, this doesn't happen immediately, exactly in the moment, perfectly. But every day, you care a little less about yourself and a little more about Jesus and a little more about his glory. There's an excellent illustration in the Bible of both of these characteristics. It's found in actually the fourth chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter four. It's between two brothers, of course, the first two brothers to walk the earth, Cain and Abel. You see, they both made a sacrifice to the Lord and the Lord accepted Abel's sacrifice. His brother got jealous. And in fact, his jealousy, his jealousy wasn't godly. His jealousy was because he wanted that approval from God, even though he didn't do what was right in one way or in another. And so what did Cain do? Well, he let sin crouch at the door. He invited his brother out into the field and he killed him. The first murder in the Bible. What's James' response to this? If this is the type of wisdom that you have, if these are the characteristics that are in your life, if you're a jealous person, if you're selfishly ambitious, James says in verse 14, don't boast. Don't boast because if you say I'm wise, when actually this is what your life actually looks like, you're living a lie, James says. It's not true. And notice where he says these two characteristics exist. Look at verse 14. They're in your hearts. These are, in a sense, private sins. They're not public necessarily. These are sins of your heart. And both of these sins are rooted in self-worship. You may look down on others. Even as we drive here, we drive past many religious Compounds. You may look down on others for worshiping physical idols. You may think, how could somebody ever do that? I know that that's not a real God, but could it be, James would say, that you actually have some idols in your heart? You're the idol. Idols are controlling you. That was the case with Cain. It led him to murder. I wonder what chaos and what destruction, jealousy and ambition have brought in your life. If you're not a Christian, you, like everybody else, probably hate when other people are jealous. You probably hate if there's a coworker who's just ambitious to the point that they will step on anybody to get ahead. You don't like that in them. And in fact, if you're honest, you probably don't like that in yourself also. 
if you're honest, if you look at yourself and examine yourself, you know that those traits don't feel good. It doesn't feel good to want things that you shouldn't. So you have to ask the question, where is this all from? Where does it come from? What's the source? James tells us in verse 15, this is not wisdom that comes down from above. It's not from above. It's not from God. Where is it from? James says, it's earthly. It's another way of saying it's from the world. John Bunyan, in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, calls this vanity fair. Imagine a fair you go to, but all the exhibits are just idols that people are worshiping. These idols influence us. And the reality is, in the world, there's tons of different influences on your life particularly. Your parents, no matter how godly they were, their sin actually influenced you. The things that they valued the most, more than God, discipled you. Your spouse even. You may love your spouse so much and think, they only do good for me, but I hate to tell you, the things they treasure more than God rub off on you. You start to like some of those things that you shouldn't that they do. Even your neighbors. Your neighbors always trying to keep up with one another. Always trying to have more than the other person. We are, our idols are influencing each other. They're battling each other. Our acquaintances, even the people we see on the street. We're constantly comparing ourselves to one another. We want the things that they have, or we're glad that we're in a better place in life than they are. Just go to the Dubai mall. It's a fair of idolatry. I mean, they pay hundreds of thousands, millions of dirhams to advertise to you, to tell you that you need this thing, you want this thing, whether it's a new car or a pair of socks. This is happening right before our eyes. And you might think, if that's the case, we just need to quarantine from the world. Let's just get out of it. Let's just run away. We'll hide it in a little corner and then we won't have the influence of the world on us. But look at this, the second thing he says. James says, the source is it's unspiritual. It's another way of saying it's, it's not from the Holy Spirit. This is from your flesh. Your flesh. The problem isn't just without you, the world. The problem is also within you. Notice he said your heart earlier. That's where the true problem is. And even one of the early church fathers, Jerome, he realized this. He was actually trying to flee from Rome, trying to flee from temptation. So he, where did he go? He went to the desert. And we can actually read a little of his diary while he was in the desert. Listen to this. This is one of the early church fathers. He said, How often, when I was living in the desert, I would imagine myself taking part in the happy life of Rome. Although my only companions were scorpions and wild beasts, time and again I was mingling with the dances of girls. My face was pale with fasting and my body cold but my mind was throbbing with desires. My body was as good as dead, but the flames of lust raged in it. You can't run away from your flesh. You can flee the world. You could leave Dubai. You could say, maybe Dubai is the problem. I just need to get out of there. But guess what? The problem's gonna travel with you wherever you go. It's your flesh. 
That's why we need to do some self-examination. It's one of the first things in the main point I shared with you. Closely consider the wisdom that you follow. Jerome knew his heart well enough to know that his solution didn't work. He left Rome and he still had a heart full of lust. How well do you know your own heart? How well do you know your thoughts? What do you think about during the day? When you get a moment of peace and quiet, where does your mind run to? What are your desires? What are the things that you want to see happen in your life? What are your fears? What would be the worst thing in the world to happen to you? What is that? Do you know what it is? What are your motives? What drive you to do the things that you do? What are your trusts? Where have you placed your faith in? These are questions we should be asking ourselves. We should be thinking about these things. And thank the Lord the Christian life is not just us and Jesus. We have one another. We have the local church. We can help each other by asking us these types of questions. They're a little scary, I'll be honest. If you ask somebody, what have you been thinking about all day today? They might be a little put off by that question. So maybe find somebody that you trust, somebody that you have a relationship with, and begin to do some of this self-examination with them. And as Christians, God's given us the Holy Spirit to reveal some of these things to us slowly over time that we could daily walk with Jesus in repentance. But according to James, there's actually one more source, one more place this is from, and it's probably the worst one of all. He says in verse, um, verse 15, he says it's demonic. It's from the devil. Now, the biblical worldview says that spiritual warfare is real. There are demonic forces that are scheming against you. As a Christian, you've got a target on your back from Satan. He wants to take you out. That's what the Bible teaches. So the question we should be asking is not only what is motivating me, what is influencing me, we also need to be asking the question, who? Who is this wisdom from? Could it be from Satan? And we also need to see the, the fruit of this. It's not enough just to be able to recognize it. We need to know what does this produce? What does the wisdom from hell create? James says in verse 16, it's disorder. Have you ever wondered, why do local churches fall apart? Why do they divide over little things like the color of the tile? Or if there's curtains in the rooms or not? Why does that happen? Somebody's influencing them. There's a wisdom that they believe. There's a wisdom that they're following. And we see here, too, the fruit of this wisdom from hell. Though the sins may be private, jealousy, ambition, there are public consequences. Depravity is another thing he says. He says, every vile practice all the sins you can imagine. Why, have you ever wondered, are there scandal after scandal after scandal in the church? Not just in the world, in the church. 
It seems like almost every week there's another pastor we read about who's fallen in the ministry, who's lived a lie, who's said one thing from a pulpit just like this, but his private life has been the exact opposite. Why does this happen? It's because there's a wisdom from hell that's teaching us. You know, in fact, the Bible teaches that we're all born and raised in this wisdom from hell. Each of us, every one of us in this room, we're born in it, we're raised in it. The world has taught you. Your parents have been some of the biggest culprits. Your friends, the culture around you, each of us, our own family units. We have our different styles of sin, the different things we value that God says are not okay. And not only has the world taught us, Satan has tempted us. He tempts Christians. He lies to them. He whispers lies to Christians. He has dominion on this earth over non-Christians. They're in his grasp. He rules over them. But not only that, our flesh is tainted. As we see in James, the the heart is actually the problem. The sins are in our heart. What are we going to do about this? Well, the Bible says that Jesus Christ came for people in this exact situation. People who have been taught to idolize their self. People who have been tempted by Satan and fallen prey to his snares. People who have a heart problem who can't help themselves, who can't fix themselves, who can't get better though they keep trying. Jesus came to die on the cross for sinners like us. And what did he bring? Forgiveness of sins, forgiveness for all our self-worship. He brought a new heart through the Holy Spirit. He crushed Satan's power. Think about that. That demonic influence, that source from the devil, it's been crushed. Jesus stomped on Satan's head when he rose from the grave. That's what's happened for Christians. So for non-Christians in the room, are you not sick of this wisdom from hell that you've been living in, that you've been choosing? You need to flee from this hellish wisdom to Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you, turn from your ways, turn from your jealousy, your ambition, the disorder that's in your life, the depravity that you live in. Turn from it and flee to Jesus Christ. He forgives you of your sins if you come to him, if you believe in him. He'll transform your life. And that's actually what we see in the next two verses. There's a wisdom from heaven. It's given to all those who humbly ask God because all the treasures of wisdom are found in Jesus Christ. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, James walks us through these same three things. There's characteristics to look out for. There's a source. There's fruit. First with the characteristics, James starts with pure. 
This wisdom from heaven is pure. Notice that he says it's first pure, then the next seven flow out of the first one. Purity, it means innocence. It's without sin. It's holiness in a sense. A life completely devoted to God and his purposes. And when you see purity in a local church, it doesn't mean the church is perfect because that's certainly not our church. It does mean that the church is serious about killing sin. It's serious about confessing sin. It's serious about living for God alone every single day. The next one, James says, is it's peaceable. Other translations say peace loving. We serve the God of peace. Peace in Galatians 6. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Now, what does this look like in the, in the church? Does it mean that there's never any conflict in the church or never any conflict among Christians? Of course, that's not what it means. Not until Jesus comes back. But what it does mean is that in the church, reconciliation is common. Forgiveness is common. James goes on, he says, it's gentle, this wisdom from heaven. It's gentle. It's not pushy. It's not violent. Jesus, of course, said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now, in the church, this means that when we correct and admonish one another, we do so in love. Paul actually used this same phrase, gentle, when he talks about acting like a nursing mother with her children. There's plenty of examples of that here at Covenant Hope Church. Just look around. Look how gentle the mothers are with their children. That's how we are to treat one another. And James goes on, it's also open to reason. This wisdom from heaven. It's not always right. Now that's a misconception today because a lot of people think if you're wise, it means most of the time you're right. And there's a danger even in the church to think that. So when you get in an argument or you have conflict with another person or even just a minor disagreement, do you start from the position that you're right? That's a danger, friend. Are you ever persuaded that you're wrong? If the answer is no, you may not be living in this wisdom from heaven. Next, James says it's full of mercy. Jesus said, be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. So in the church, in our relationships with one another, this looks like being quick to forgive one another. It means that when I sin against you, and if you know me well enough, it, it will happen. And it has happened. You extend forgiveness quickly. It also means that the church is a safe place for those who confess their sin. Because there's mercy in the gospel. Because God has been merciful to each of us in Jesus Christ. In fact, how quickly you forgive others is actually just a reflection of how deeply you yourself understand your need for forgiveness in the gospel. James says, this wisdom also produces good fruits. Of course, he didn't say bad fruits. That wouldn't make any sense. Good fruits. This is that new creation language. Each of us, Christians, 
we're new creations in Jesus Christ. And the fruit, it takes time to see. So we're patient with one another. James also says it's impartial. God himself, he shows no partiality. He has no favorites. So in the church, when we're marked by this impartialness, it means that our relationships are marked by diversity. We're friends with people who are older than us and younger than us. People who have different passports than us. People who come from different cultures. That's actually what the gospel does because the wisdom of the world says hang out with the people who are most like you. But the wisdom of God brings together all the differences. Look at, Just look across the room right now. Brings them together under the name of Jesus Christ. The last characteristic James says to look out for is that it's sincere. It's not fake. It's not pretend. So in the church, we have real relationships with one another. There's honesty and transparency. There's true friends, friendships, genuine love and care for one another because we actually do love and care for one another. It also means, this word sincere, it also means that when we're applying the scriptures, we do so to ourselves first before we go to others and apply it to them. This is what God's wisdom looks like, particularly what it looks like in the local church. Where is it from? Well, James says in verse 17, it's from above. It's not from the world. You can't find it anywhere here. It's not in any books you'll find. It's not from the flesh. You can't find it within. The answer is not within you. And it's certainly not from other spiritual powers, from demons. And I must say, it's not even from pastors and from elders. It's from God. James says earlier in chapter 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And look what this wisdom produces in verse 18. It's a harvest of righteousness, not every vile practice, righteousness. So healthy local churches then are little farms of righteousness. They produce an abundance of righteousness. And they reproduce this. They send it out for more. You can actually see it in their good conduct, in the beautiful lives that they live. It's attractive. The fruit is also peace, not disorder. And peace here doesn't mean that there's no conflict. I've heard some people say, you know, I'm a peacemaker. And what they really mean is, I'm too afraid of other people to get them to be mad at me. So I, that's what I mean by peacemaker. James doesn't mean, mean that. Jesus Christ, of course, is the Prince of Peace. The Holy Spirit produces peacemakers. It doesn't mean that we never confront one another. It doesn't mean that we never have conflict. But it does mean that it's our goal to see reconciliation happen. We do everything in our power for reconciliation. We always take that first step of initiation towards a brother or a sister when there's conflict. We seek relational harmony and we take that first step towards that. What if each of us made it our life goal to stop losing friends? To stop seeing relationships just dissolve and fizzle out? What if we always took a step towards the other person 
when we felt an awkward situation arise or a cross-cultural difference happen? What if we sought peace in the church? Now, you know, because many of us have tried in our own strength to see these things happen, it's impossible apart from God. This wisdom from heaven is a gift from God. That's why our prayer lives look like us asking God often for wisdom, because we know as Christians that we don't have it in our own strength, which makes us especially grateful to God, because he says he'll give it to any who ask of him. Aren't you grateful to God for the wisdom from heaven? Christ, 1 Corinthians 2 says, is the wisdom of God. If you want peace in your relationships, Christ brings us peace with God and with one another. And what does Christ do? He transforms that hellish wisdom that each of us have into heavenly wisdom. So when James asks, who is wise and understanding among you? You can honestly say the truth. It's not me. It can't be me. But if you're a Christian, if Christ is your wisdom, what a treasure you possess. You can walk in this wisdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can live these characteristics out in your life. So have you closely considered the wisdom that you follow? Have you thought about it? Have you examined your life and thought about what's been influencing me? Is it the world? Is it your flesh? Is it Satan? Have you thought about where this wisdom comes from? And have you today closely chosen, carefully chosen, the wisdom that you will follow? Each of us has a choice. There's only two choices. James says in verse 13, if you've made that choice, don't boast about it. Don't talk about it. Show it. Show it in your good conduct. Show it in your meekness. Show it in your purity and in your peace and in your gentleness and in your mercy and in your sincerity. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do need this wisdom from above, this wisdom from heaven. It can't be found in ourselves, Lord, so help us. Help us be able to honestly examine our lives and consider who's influencing us, whose wisdom we are following. And Lord, give us a resolve to choose Christ and his wisdom, this wisdom from above. Bear fruit in our church, Lord. Help us be peacemakers. Lord, help us live in good conduct. Sow this harvest of righteousness in our church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.